Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. We're back after a couple of week hiatus with our first episode of November. And to make our grand return, we are back with another amazing guest and somebody that I've really been trying to have had on the podcast for, I would say, the last six to eight months. So really excited for today's episode. So to not delay things any further, today I'm excited to welcome Laurel Tooby founding partner at Supernode Ventures. Laurel started her career as a journalist with roles at Young and Rubicom Advertising and Glamour Magazine. During her time at Glamour Magazine in the late 1990s, Laurel founded Media Bistro, a first of its kind interactive community for professionals in the journalism, media, and communications industries. After running the business for 14 years, Laurel sold Media Bistro, using this tremendous success to jump into angel investing. After angel investing for five years under the Flatiron Investors Mantle, Laurel founded Supernode Ventures, a sector agnostic pre-seed and seed stage venture fund based in New York City. Laurel raised Supernode's first fund in 2017, ultimately deploying this capital into companies like Braze, Subject, and Walnut. Laurel is a graduate of Smith College and really so excited that she was able to take the time to come on the show today. So let's get her on the call. Hi, Laurel. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Eric. It's so great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again. Really honored to have you on and have so much to discuss with you today, given how many different paths you found yourself down over the course of your career. And as I had mentioned to the audience before you came on, you started out as a journalist, turned into an entrepreneur, and now you're a venture investor. And one of the big transitions you made was between journalism and entrepreneurship in founding Media Bistro, which turned out to be a great success. So what motivated you to start Media Bistro in the first place? Well, I was lonely and single, and there's nothing like being your, having your own problem to solve to start a company. Most founders, many founders, start uh, companies around a problem that they're trying to solve for themselves or for a customer that they know very well needs a solution to this problem. And so my problem was I was single. And the uh, solution at the time, this was pre-internet now, so I started a cocktail party to meet men. And that cocktail party became the crux of a massive community of people that I took online a few years later. So it started offline, but I sensed an opportunity once the parties were going strong and people were really digging them. Uh, and I sensed an opportunity and I realized that these are customers. These aren't just people that I'm bringing together for fun. These people want something uh, from me that I can deliver them, that I uniquely can provide them. And so how do I turn them into customers? Um, so a few of the things that happened at the parties were, you know, people had fun, people dated, but a lot of people came to the parties to meet work colleagues and friends and friendships formed. So it was a community, a real strong community that was, that was being created every single month. And the cohort was people within, you know, media, people who were similar. It was, it was easy for me to reach that, that group because they all, you know, came to this, this party. Um, they, they were all friendly. They all talked to each other. 
And so um, I think that's a really good lesson for founders to take away is that it, it, it can take some time, especially, and the second thing I will say is that this was a marketplace too. So it's a community, it was a marketplace. And what um, the, the way I monetized it was by creating a job board for people to go and post jobs and also um, you know, search jobs. And that was how I first monetized it. So I'll pause there because I've done a lot of talking and see if you had questions around any of that. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to the community aspect, which is obviously was so integral to what you ended up creating. I think for people that or founders that want to create marketplaces, it seems a lot easier said than done, specifically because a marketplace is only as valuable as the people that are on it. And so when you were really trying to cultivate this community, how did you decide which people would be best to invite to these parties and which people would interact best with each other? Yeah, so this is one of the absolute critical things to remember about um, any type of community, any type of marketplace that you're creating. For those of you founders out there who are creating any of these things, is you have to have a very high bar and you have to curate, even though it's painful to curate in the beginning because you have nobody. And so you really have to believe in yourself and believe that this is this is actually going to be something, right? And so I truly, in my heart of hearts, wanted this to be the most powerful, impressive community of high-level, hotshot journalists and media professionals out there, right? So I wanted to create a high bar from the very beginning. I felt that I was one of those journalists, and I only wanted to associate with that level of journalist. So um, when it came to the parties, I actually was very exclusive. I said, don't bring anybody to the party. Only... Um, ask me if you can bring somebody. So don't bring a guest, which was very unusual back then because, um, and, and you know, it's it's pretty unusual now. If people host a party, they're like, oh yeah, bring friends, you know, bring anybody. And it's um, it was the opposite. I, I did everything I could to make an air, to create an air of exclusivity so that people felt like, ooh, I got invited. Ooh, I don't know if Laurel will let you in. Let me ask Laurel to see if she'll let you come to the parties. And so from the get-go, it was it felt exclusive. And it was all about the vibe. It was all about creating an energy around it that felt um, exclusive and that made people feel special when they walked through the door. And you had mentioned how you spent over three years just having these parties before you even decided that it was the time to monetize. And as you mentioned, with founders who are often going through the same dilemma, how does that experience about kind of waiting three whole years to to then focus on monetization, how has that helped you with assisting, assisting uh, your portfolio companies? Um, I mean, all of my experiences building the company from zero to millions of dollars in sales, all of those experience are th experiences are things that I bring to bear when I talk to my portfolio founders and give them advice. It's not, you know, one or two particular pieces of advice that I give them. It's, it's the spectrum from starting the company to hiring to um, managing expectations to, you know, thinking about when to monetize to, you know, growing the company. Every aspect of, of doing that I went through myself you know, all the way through to a sale. And not a lot of venture capitalists have gone through that. It's so shocking to me to think all these people are giving advice and they've never done it themselves. So 
um, you know, I, I try to be humble and not assume too much because it was a while ago and um, things have changed. But in the end, you know, certain things haven't changed. Customers are customers, um, you know, growth is growth, uh, hiring is hiring. I mean, there's all the, there are all these lessons that have nuances to it, nuances to them that, um, that are the same, no matter how many years have passed, right? Uh, you want to hire slowly, fire fast. <laughs> that's, that's one that I learned along the way. Um, and, you know, many hundreds of lessons, depending on each stage of the company. And so, um, yeah, so getting, if you want me to go through the whole trajectory of how, it, you know, how I took the company from zero to, you know, millions of, of customers, I'm happy to walk you through that. Um, or we can skip around whatever you want. Yeah, well, obviously, I think people would love to hear more about the Media Beast story, but I wanted to actually transition more to your investing experience. And I think that whenever people kind of get the bug for venture capital and entrepreneurship, people think, how do I start angel investing? And I think it's a lot harder than people advertise it to be. So when you first started angel investing, what were some of the initial challenges you faced? Well, I didn't want to be an angel. I wanted to be a devil investor. <laughs> I wanted to be a venture capitalist from the very beginning. And I felt that angel investing was my only path because I knocked on the doors of all the VCs. I was a woman over 40, okay? Even though I had had an exit, a big exit, life-changing money, I had done everything there was to do, you know, from starting a company to exiting. Didn't matter. No VC took me seriously. They all said things like, oh, let's get to know each other. What have you done? You know, what have you invested in? And I hadn't invested in anything yet. I had to be honest. And so I realized that I was never going to get in through the front door. I was going to have to create a venture firm by faking it till I made it, right? So that meant pretending that I was a VC, but really I was a So I took um, a portfolio construction approach, which is what you all should do. Even if you have no money at all, you can do this. It's so easy. Go on AngelList, go on, um, I think it's Republic, go on a bunch of these sites where you can put small checks in, create a portfolio of 25 companies, right? That is your fantasy portfolio that if you had, you know, $10 million, you would have created, you would have bought these same companies, right? And you can put small checks in. You can put a $1,000 check in through some of these platforms into some really interesting, cool companies that are raising. Um, and so that's kind of what I did was I created, uh, I decided I wanted a portfolio of a minimum 25 companies and I was going to allot 500,000 of my net worth, my personal net worth into doing this, but I was going to fake it and pretend I was a VC. And how did I do that? I put up, I don't think I even had a website. Yeah, maybe I had a website. I had a website on Wix.com called flatironinvestors.com. So I bought a URL. I didn't even incorporate this thing. I didn't, go, you know, I didn't bother incorporating it. I just put up a website and said I was a VC, you know. And then I got a lot of um, help from some students. Um, I put up job ads and, you know, in the different colleges, and I spread the word that I was uh, investing. And I got help from. Uh, from you know people in the community and I started going to events I, I made business cards I wore my suit I wore my whatever whatever and I went to events and, and started passing out my cards and meeting founders meeting VCs and telling my story and basically saying like 
hey, I'm here. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm here to stay and I have a lot to offer any founder. Um, basically, you have to figure out what is your unique selling proposition, right? If you want to be successful as a venture investor or even an angel investor, if you want to take it really seriously, if you're not just building a portfolio to show that you can do it, but if you want to be taken seriously, you need to basically uh, decide, you know, what do you have to offer, right? And if you're just out of school, I would argue, no offense to any of you guys and uh, any of you folks in school, I would argue it would be better to take uh, some time and get some experience uh, working at a startup, starting your own startup. But I, I think it's more important to work at a startup, really, and see somebody as they're struggling with the day-to-day -day routine and the day-to-day -day challenges and the fears and all that. And so do your best to try to maybe get a chief of staff job or a business development job or something where you are rolling up your sleeves and getting to the nitty gritty. Um, that is the absolute best experience you could ever have to become an angel investor. Because then later you can say, this is what I bring to the table. I have experience having helped run a company. I have experience, you know, selling for a company or whatever it is that you did uh, for, those com for that company. And so that would be my advice. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. Then go and, and just put some money into 25 companies and start offering your help to those founders because they need help. They need hands on deck. So, you know, if time is all you can offer as your unique selling proposition, well, then give them time, you know, but give something. Don't just put money in. You have to put energy, put your passion, put your network put your knowledge in into these companies to help them and that's that's the most important thing as an angel and one of the biggest things as an angel is identifying good founders um and so for you what are the main characteristics you look at um when identifying if a founder is going to be successful not only in managing their team but also growing the company uh there are a lot of things that i look at um some of it is very, very qualitative and not quantitative. A lot of VCs call, you know, their special spidey skills, pattern recognition. As a woman, I call it, you know, like a, a sense about, uh, you know, a, um, a sixth sense about, you know, what's going to make for success. But um, I've been fooled before. I will admit that. So I have a list of like 40 questions. Some of them are qualitative, some of them are quantitative that I ask my founders. Um, and, and the key is to get to know people, right? In an informal as possible setting, not over Zoom. That is not the best way to do it. It's much better to go out for a beer, um, meet them, go to an event that they're hosting or that you both are attending. Um, ask the person out for coffee, you know, do this multiple times to get to know them. And then to also do a little bit of research around them, who's worked with them, who knows them, you know, um, find out, look on LinkedIn to see who you're connected to or who your second or third degree is connected to. So you can do a little bit of, um, of research and reconnaissance without asking them for an intro, go to people who he, did, he or she didn't give you the names of and ask them their opinion about that person. I, I saved a lot of um, heartache when I did that um, on LinkedIn for one investment. 
I was really close to investing in this guy. I'm not going to name names or what his company did, but he was a great salesman. He was just like hard, you know, pitching. He had all the right pedigree, went to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. He, um, you know, he had a great uh, idea. And then I decided, you know, I was about to put the check in 25K and it's not an insignificant amount of money. It's like, you know, serious, serious coin. And then I said, you know what, let me just do one last gut check. Let me um, reach out to some people on LinkedIn. And the first person I reach out to, I write, it's an old boyfriend. And I write him and I'm like, hi, Andrew, who hasn't heard from me in 25 years. Um, just wondering how you know this dude, blah, blah, blah. And he said, call me now. So I called him on the phone and he said, hey, you know, thanks for reconnecting. Uh, by the way, this guy owes everyone money. He's like a total thief. Do not invest. You will lose your money. And so I didn't. So I saved myself money. So it's just like you have to do your homework, right? You can't be lazy. Just because someone is salesy and seems to have all the right mojo and they have, you know, all the right um, credentials does not mean that they aren't freaking criminals. Um, so there was one guy I did invest in and he fooled everybody through his series A. It turns out he was nuts. So <laughs> in those cases, you can't always predict, um, you know, what's going to happen. But um, a lot of my founders have been terrific and I would back them again, even though some of them have failed in their companies and they, they did work their butts off and they tried really hard and they did all the right things. And sometimes the market just doesn't uh, reward you. And one of the areas that you've been extremely vocal about is trying to get more investment dollars into women's health in general. Um, and so for you, in your opinion, what would you say, what areas of the women's health sector do you believe have the greatest market potential? Uh, there are so many areas in women's health. The problem is I don't think a lot of payers are going to pay for all the many things that uh, women suffer from, right? So women are disproportionately affected by every single disease, um, you know, from Alzheimer's to heart disease uh, to, you know, the, the ones that you know of, like breast cancer and things like that. But, um, but in terms of solutions that are, that are coming out to the market, there's so many creative people starting companies in, um, you know, in service of these, uh, you know, uh, of these diseases, of these um, symptoms that women feel that, you know, during menopause and things like that. But the problem is who's gonna pay for all of that? I don't think the health insurance industry in general cares all that much about, you know, women versus men versus anybody. They don't care about anything except, you know, curing things with the cheapest possible, in the cheapest possible way, right? And saving as much money as possible. I don't think it's really all about, um, you know, the the values that it needs to be about the healthcare system, and so um, I can't point to one area that is, you know, in need because there's so many of them. There's just like every area from a woman's uh, fertility, which is a huge, enormous problem in, you know, globally. Uh, women are less fertile. Women are starting families later. They're struggling to start families. The birth rates are declining, uh, you know, across the world, um, and it's happening here. And so, 
starting from there through to, you know, midlife to, you know, uh, women suffering from postmenopausal uh, symptoms. You know, it's, it's just a sad situation. <laughs> and um, we tried to raise a $50 million women's health tech fund and were unable to do so. I know it's really hard to do that right now to raise any fund, but, um, you know, it was shocking to me how little interest there was in women's health and how LPs said they thought it was a niche. And I'm thinking, we're 50-some percent of the population. How are we a niche? But I do understand that we can't afford to pay for all of these wonderful technologies that are coming out individually. It needs to be a group effort, and that's not... Um, that's not been happening. Yeah, I, I can definitely resonate with that point. I mean, I focused a lot on, from a previous work experience, on the obesity market, and specifically with the rollout of these kind of new innovative drug therapies. It sounds great, just like these um, these drugs that are for women's fertility or women's menopause, but to be able for health insurance to be able to cover so much of the population is a whole separate hurdle. So really, I mean, that makes that makes total sense there. Are there any other sectors outside of, of women's health? It could be fintech, it could be e-commerce that you think um, are going to be really interesting investment opportunities over the next year? Oh, well, over the next year, I mean, I <laughs> that's too short of our horizon, honestly. I think you have to look at the huge demographic shifts that are happening and think about the long-term opportunities and start planning for right now for those, right? So um, I'm very, I think more and more, especially now that you see all the fake information out there on social media, um, since the Israel-Palestine um, disaster, uh, I think that solutions around cybersecurity and killing off fake accounts and fake bots that needs to happen like immediately because we're going to have world war three because of this kind of um you know fake propaganda that's happening and recently it's been discovered it was um it was uh, written about in the new york times that russia china and iran are behind tens of thousands of bots that spreading disinformation. So it has become a new front on the war. You know, it is, a, it is its own Cold War happening. Or it could be the beginning of World War III, um, either one. But the point is, we need solutions to this kind of thing right away. And, um, and so cybersecurity is a very important arena, and I'm sure AI um, is going to figure strongly in that, both pro, both um attacking us and also helping us to prevent attacks it's just this is nuts what's happening the other huge demographic shift that i would look at is the fact that there aren't as many people as there need to be in um in major countries uh in the um in the first world countries and that is going to force us to use robotics and robots and i know it seems so futuristic but it's not we're we have a problem. We don't have as many young people growing, you know, growing up and who are able to take jobs and we're not allowing as many immigrants into these countries. So who's going to do the work, right? Um, there are so many jobs that need to be done. So I would say uh, robotics is also really exciting and interesting over the long haul. Um, aging, 
age uh, silver tech because guess what? That cohort, um, there's an enormous cohort of people like me who are not just going to disappear after age 60, darling. They are going to live and work through the 80s through their, and they could live till they're 100. And so what do we do about these people? How do we help them live better lives? Um, how do we serve their needs? Um, how do we keep them engaged and working? You know, there, there have to be technologies that are built around this population that aren't always going to be as physically mobile as, you know, they're, they're going to need uh, tools. And so those are three areas I would focus in on um, right now for the future. Well, really want to thank you again for, for taking the time. I know that so many students like myself are looking for people that went from entrepreneurs to investors, um, because it obviously seems like the venture capital la landscape can be very bottlenecked, especially um, if you've ever had experience in it before. So it was really inspiring to hear your story. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'm happy to also give advice on um you know how people can break in and what they can do better because I see I've seen I've worked with over 50 um students interns uh who came through our ranks and helped them get jobs and I can tell you you know what the successful ones look like. Yeah, well that that would be great and um we'll make sure to connect you with any students would love to uh, chat further with you. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for your time today. It was really fun talking to you. You as well. All right. Well, I hope you guys all enjoyed today's episode. I know I did. Myself, again, want to thank Laurel for, for taking the time. was really excited about this one. So glad we were able to have it finally happen. And just kind of a few takeaways that I had from today's conversation. One, she really had a lot of amazing insights about the strategies she used to cultivate community, a media bistro. And I think those strategies are applicable for anybody looking to build marketplaces or community-centric platforms, even in today's age. Um, also, really, I thought her advice about the value of working at a startup was really thoughtful and, and helpful. And Lastly, when asked about kind of new investment areas, her mention of cybersecurity and robotics were really interesting to me. Those are two areas I don't know a lot about, but her reasoning behind why those sectors are promising is extremely convincing. So I think those areas uh, deserve more research into on a per personal front and for anybody else who's looking for new startups to analyze. So that's it for today's episode. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks with another episode. 